What are the trends that have produced an ignorance of God's ways and, impre and impeded the practice of communion with Him? So there's some assumptions in that question. So I think we need to make sure that we would agree on the assumptions before we ask the question. And the first assumption is this, is that we would probably all assume that there is an ignorance of God's ways. In general, in the culture in which we live, that there is an ignorance of the person and work of God. Would you, can we, can we make that assumption together that we would pretty well look around the climate of the world we live in and say, there's an ignorance of the ways of God. There's an ignorance of the things of God. There, I think we would even argue that inside Christendom, inside evangelical circles, there's an ignorance of the things of God. Uh, it, it is amazing to me sometimes, even people who have uh, been in church or walk with the Lord, that sometimes there are some concepts that are brand new. And, and so we really want to understand that there is nothing wrong with being at a place spiritually, but there is something wrong if you are so comfortable in that place that you don't want to ever grow, that you don't want to move, that you don't yearn for more, want for more, long for more, understanding, wisdom, understanding those things. And so I think we can say that there is an ignorance of God's ways. And so if we're ignorant of God, that's obviously going to impede our practice of communing with God. There is an underlying assumption, and this is part of the answer, that Ignorance is bliss. We, we hear that all the time. Ignorance is bliss. And sometimes we apply that theologically because we just say, well, I don't really care what I know about God. I don't really care what I know about Scripture because it's not about what I know. It's really just about relationship. That is the dumbest thing that you could ever utter because you would never utter that about anything else in the world. Think about it for just a moment. If you went to the doctor and you said, look, I, I, something's serious wrong with me. I, I don't know what it is, but, but I've got these symptoms. And the doctor looked at you and he said, you know, I don't know a lot about medicine. I've never really studied a lot about science. I've never taken a class on biology or pharmacology. But the really important thing right now is that you and I work on our relationship. And you would probably think, the only reason I have a relationship with you is because I'm expecting you to know these things. And so the relationship that we would have would be based on this. It can't be based on it without you knowing these things. When we come into a relationship with the Lord, I think knowing that it's not all about just knowing facts, but it is very important that we do know facts. So, so let's talk about a couple of things. When when the book says that, that people have conformed to the modern spirit of the age, it talks about that it makes that we make much of man that we make much of man and we make little of God. Um, we see a lot in it, certainly in our culture um, about um, I heard one of my kids the other day and they were talking about they called a name. And I said, who is that? I never heard of them. And they were talking about like it was just a common name. I said, who, who are you talking about? And this is what they said. I said, oh, she's an influencer. I said, influence who? I said, what, what are you, an influencer. They have now people that make a living off doing nothing 
but social media posts, and they are known as influencers. And so we live in an age of not only the superstar athlete and the, the, the superstar in politics, the superstar in church, the superstar to where we have made so much of man that when you make that much of man, it is very difficult to make much of God. And so that is certainly a problem in the culture that we live in, in impeding people's understanding of the Lord. It is not that we shouldn't be impressed with people. But I find that it is so easy when we talk about the Ten Commandments, especially that we wouldn't put anything before God, the first commandment, and that we wouldn't commit idolatry, the second commandment, that the greatest way that we break those commandments is with other people. Sometimes it's in relationships. Sometimes it's by idolizing. Sometimes it's by what the hope we put. I've got to tell you, I'm disappointed sometimes in the American church with the amount of idolatry that we give towards politics. And I've had some people, when I've said things like this, have gotten on me that I'm I'm not anti, I, I vote ever, in elections, I'm for that. I think we ought to pick the best candidates. But there seems to be a desperation in the church of thinking so, so often that some man is going to bring the hope and prosperity that all of our world is looking for that I wonder sometimes, not that we shouldn't vote our conscience, but that we haven't elevated the role of human over the person of God and then celebrated that. So we see that that's a, a function of, of one of the reasons. But the second is, is that people are often confused and intimidated by modern skepticism. In other words, so many people are supposedly skeptics or atheists or don't believe in God or the spirit of our age when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to so many things that a lot of well-meaning Christians just kind of throw up their hands, right? And they're like, I, I just, I, I, I'm not going to get involved. I'm going to let somebody smarter than me ha have those discussions and those debates. And I can remember I, I hadn't any more, I, I hadn't surrendered to ministry. I went to college and, and I was kind of, I've always been this kind of, put a carrot in front of my nose, like if you give me, like, I like a goal, I like a list. And so I, I can remember it, I can remember getting the, when you used to actually get a published book and I went to USM and, and when we got this, this book and it had all the majors in it, right? And so I found my communications major and it was awesome because it told me all of the classes I had to have and I had a little pencil and I could just mark off boom, boom, boom every semester. So I'm, I'm taking classes like as fast as I can because it was kind of like a competition to me to see how many classes I could get done as quick as I could. And I graduated at USM in three years, but that's not because I'm brilliant. It's because something's wrong with me. Like I was like, I want to finish. I just want to finish. I want to finish. I want to finish. And I took summer classes and I took night classes and I was like, put a, let, me, let me do that. So uh, I was at, at night, I signed up for this. I had to have a philosophy class. So I, I signed up for this random four-hour philosophy class and this dude was serious. It started at six and I'll never forget this. It was supposed to end at 10.05 because it was a summer class. So it was four hours and five minutes. And this tells you how serious this professor was. One night we were in there, it's about the third week, and he was serious when he said this. He said, all right, guys, I'm going to give you all a little bit of a break. We're going to wrap it up early, and I'm going to let you all go tonight. It was 10.02. It was 10.02, because I thought he was being sarcastic. I was like, that's not even funny. It's 10 o'clock. Like, I'm ready, ready to go. But he would not say that he was an atheist. He, he was an agnostic, but he would do everything he could to try to 
break down and dismantle. And oftentimes, the faith and the understanding of things like that, and it would rock people's world. I'd never taken a theology class. I'd never taken anything to do with apologetics. And to be honest, I liked the guy. I actually went in because it. I'd be up, I uh, took it on a Tuesday night. Sometimes I'd be up all night long because it would send me, and I'm 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 thinking, and it bothered me, and I thought I know there's answers to this, and like, and everybody, and and I can remember a, a girl that was in there. She was he was trying to engage in a debate. He was challenging us to to think about the reasons for the existence of God. And this young lady piped off something, and so he starts just hammering down on her reasoning, just breaking it down, breaking it down, breaking it down. And it came that her reasoning was that that's what she learned in, in Sunday school. That's She used that as her argument in this philosophy class. And so he just went bananas on that. And the whole time, I, as bad as I felt for the young lady that was, she was sitting two rows over for me, but I thought he's got a point. There's got to be a better reason. There, there's got to be a better argument for that. So when we encounter stuff like that, we either say, you know what, I just can't deal with that. I, I'm, I'm just going to let somebody else deal with that. Or we say that we serve a God that absolutely is can, there are apologetics, there is a defense that the Bible is true, that God is real, and there are definitive reasons for why we believe what we believe, and we dive into that. We don't just throw our hands up and say, well, who can know? I don't think, I think we need to go headlong. So th th that's the second reason. Number three, I think one of the reasons that there is an ignorance of God, and, and certainly what Packer cites in God's ways is, and, and Packer doesn't use this term, but I, but I heard it years ago, and I think it perfectly describes the spirit of our age. Someone coined the term, I think it was Christian Smith, that coined the term moral therapeutic deism. Now, some of you are going, wow, you can go, go to work tomorrow and throw out moral therapeutic deism, and you'll really sound like something. What did y'all talk about at church last night? Well, we talked about the irrelevance of moral therapeutic deism. What, what that is, is that is just a belief that God is just this pretty good grandfatherly type character in the sky who exists to try to keep you halfway moral and to make you feel good about yourself. And that is the pervasive belief about God. It's one of the reasons why the question, do you believe in God, is one of the most ignorant questions there are. Because even when people say, yes, there's got to be a follow-up. Well, who do you think God is? Because I can say I believe in God, but if I believe in some moral therapeutic version of, of deistic theology, well, that's not God. So we have to really understand what it is that people are saying. So, so I think that there's a reason as well. And then certainly, uh, and this is important, this is the, what the whole study is based on. One of the reasons that, that one of the things that's produced an ignorance of God and His ways is a weak theology because of people dismissing the importance of doctrine. It doesn't, that really doesn't matter. I mean, I can't tell you how many times you've heard this, I've heard this. I mean, I believe in Jesus. Isn't that all that matters? No, that is not all that matters. It's not even close to all that matters. I don't even know that when you say you believe in Jesus, what you're talking about. So if somebody says, I believe in Jesus, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, I just believe in Jesus. 
Well, so I, I think that one of the things that we have to, to really embrace is that, that when we say theology, that, that theos, that, that means God, logi, study of, we're talking about the study of God. Doctrine is what we believe. And some people will say, you know, when you start studying theology and doctrine, isn't that just dry and boring? No, my God's not boring. My God's not dry. His word's not boring. I had somebody um, that visited our church not a while, ago, a while back, and they hadn't come, and they were blown away because they came, and they, 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 we, were, we were in the Moses series, and then they, they checked out and saw that we were going to move into Colossians, and we are going to be in Colossians for 17 weeks and months on the life of Moses, and um, that they approached it, and they said, I just can't, that, that just seemed like so long, and then when they started listening and got involved, they realized that how incredible it is when you approach the Bible and understand that from an expository view that we are systematically going through Scripture, that the Bible is not boring. I love what John MacArthur said one time. He took eight years to preach through Matthew. Eight years. They asked John MacArthur, they said, well, don't people get bored with those long series? He said, no, I don't think people get bored with long series. I think people get bored with boring sermons. And here's one of the passions of my life when it comes to doctrine and theology and preaching the Word of God. Now, I, I have some, you know, there are great people and great encouragers in this church. I have some other people that is their role to keep me humble, and I'm thankful for both, right? you got to be thankful for all kind of people that God puts in your life. But one of the things that I'm very thankful for is that when people understand and see from the pulpit that it is absolutely essential, not only that they understand God's Word, but that, it is, that there is a passion for God's Word, that there is an excitement to God's Word, and that when we grasp that, I don't think that anybody's going to look at that and say, well, I thought that was boring, because if the, the person of God has communicated that it is boring, or the things of God are communicated about in a boring fashion, we've missed the entire point of who God is. So, how does, if you're going to start thinking more about God, because that's really what this book is about, to know God, you're going to think more about the Lord. Some of you know that praise song, when I think about the Lord. That's theology. When I think about the Lord, the study of God, when I think about the person of God, what does thinking about the Lord, how does that affect an individual? Two things that I think you need to know, very, very important. Two things. You cannot think about God, the God of Scripture, without being humbled. If we take ourselves and then we compare it to the Lord and understand who He is, it brings us to a rightful place. It said that Teddy Roosevelt was in a meeting one time and it had gotten heated and discussions had gone long into the night and he said, let's take a break. And he asked everybody to go out onto the veranda and he just asked everybody to look up into the night sky. And after he asked him to look up into the night sky, he just paused for a few minutes. And then he looked at all of them and he said, I think we're all small enough now. Let's continue the discussion. I think sometimes if people spend more time thinking about the Lord, it humbles us to a point to realize that there is a God. It, this is the most important thing you're going to learn through this whole study. There is a God. You're not him. Right? So I grasp that. So if I'm not him, let me get to know him. So that's number one. Number two. Thinking about God not only humbles the mind, but it also comforts the soul. It comforts the soul. There's a comfort when we think about the person and work of God. So 
then number three, we talked about that theology and doctrine shouldn't be boring. Why is theology both important and practical? Theology is the most practical of all subjects. And the reason that I would say that, that it's more practical than any other thing that you would study, any other discipline, any other major, any other subject, that theology is the most practical of all subjects. Because how cruel is it to yourself to try to live in a world without knowing as much about the one who created the world as possible, without knowing as much as you can about the one who runs the world, without that you stumble through life and you end up wasting your life. And that's exactly what we see. Without an acknowledgement of God, without a knowing of God, without a, in all your ways we acknowledge Him, right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and then He will direct our paths. But if we don't know the person of God, know the one who created, know His plan for the world, know His plan for our life, if we don't understand those things, then nothing else makes sense. Nothing else is able to be, to be placed under that. I talked about this past Sunday, how that it's great to pursue other things. I'm 100% for students pursuing excellence in academics. I don't believe that God has gloried in people not being excellent, doing the best that they can. I, I believe that there is something that can be that's incredibly important. I think athletics are a wonderful tool and music and art and all of those things that they're wonderful. But the reason that they're wonderful is that we understand them, that God made those things and made us able to understand them and to be a part of them. So we see them not as an end to themselves, but as part of God's created order. And we ought to try to understand him more through all of those things. It's the most practical thing we can study. So there are five basic truths, and some of you are going, five? Yeah, five basic truths. Let me walk you through these. These, these are really, really quickly. This is going to guide every study of theology, going to guide our time together. Number one, that God has spoken to man and the Bible is his word. That is the most, if you are going to study theology, that is the most important point, that God has spoken. We are not ignorant of the doctrines of God, we are not ignorant of the theology of God, that God has spoken and that the Bible is His Word, so we can know God. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult at points, but we can know God. Number two, God is Lord over everything, over this world and everything in it, so He is the one that is deserving of all of the glory. We're going to talk some more about this, but the the reason for a study of doctrine is not simply so you would know more, but that by knowing more, you would love the Lord more, and that because you love the Lord more, you would worship the Lord more, and when you worship the Lord more, you would surrender your life more to Him, and when you surrender your life more to Him, you would serve Him more, and it keeps going and going and going. So understanding that the, the reason for everything is that God deserves the glory. Number three, God is Savior through the power of Jesus Christ's atoning work. That's a uh, basic truth of biblical theology. 
that God sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the wages of sin of death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. That Jesus Christ saves. God is Savior through the Jesus Christ atoning work. Number four, simply God is triune, and we will talk more about that. We're talking about the Trinity. God is triune. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three in one, the Trinity. And then number five, godliness requires responding to God in trust, obedience, faith, worship. Godliness requires responding to God in trust, obedience, faith, and worship. And I want to, I'm going to go ahead and ask number five to explain that last point. What is the ultimate aim in studying theology? Well, if we're to respond to God and trust, faith, obedience, and worship, then why do we study theology? Let me start off by telling you why we don't, why we don't study theology. Did you know there's such thing as a Southern Baptist Pharisee? Some of you know the Southern Baptist Pharisee. They're alive and well. They're in every church. That is the person who is very proud of themselves for having knowledge for knowledge's sake. And when they gain knowledge, they like to look down on other people who don't have the same knowledge that they do. And somehow, because they've learned some theological terms or been benefited to be in some different classes, they think they're of a different spiritual status and ought to be elevated to a different place. It is a spiritual Pharisee, and that is the lowest of the low. Notice that when Jesus spoke to people, he had more compassion for people that were prostitutes than he did Pharisees. So what does that tell us about the study of theology? It is never meant to puff you up. You walk out of here and you say, well, I learned some pretty awesome terms. That's great. But if you don't love Jesus more because you love the terms and you hadn't understood the whole point of what we're doing, we're walking through Colossians and I'm, I mean, I love preaching Paul's letters and there's some deep theology that we're walking through and I hope that you grasp it. But the point of walking through the, through Colossians is not that you would have a way to be able to have just more knowledge about Colossians or even about theology. It's so that by taking that, it would cause you that because I know it, now it goes to my heart and I love the Lord more and I serve Him more and I'm more obedient. So if you're growing in knowledge, but you're not growing in faith and you're not growing in worship and you're not growing in love and you're not growing in service, there's a chance you might be a Pharisee. And I think that's the important point of understanding the need to study theology, um, not just so we would know more, but so that our lives would conform to the truths we know, that our lives would conform to the truths we know. So you're reading this book, hopefully you're reading your Bible, um, your approach to the Bible, I believe, ought to be systematic. One of the reasons I preach systematically through the Bible is because I think that's the way that people ought to read the Bible, that you ought to read books at a time and have a plan for reading your Bible. And when you do read your Bible and when you do study theology, I have done what? I have hidden God's Word in my heart that I might what? Might not sin against God. Thy Word is what? 
lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? So if that's true, then as you study theology, as you read this book, and hopefully you will read it with your Bible close by, and as you study the Word of God, what should you do? How, how should you focus on turning your knowledge about God into knowledge of God? Let me make this point really quickly. Is it possible to have knowledge of God without knowing God? I think that's pretty obvious. There, there are people, um, when, when my son was really little, it used to blow my mind because one of the reasons I would motivate him in school is I knew that he could memorize things because, and this is almost quirky, he could tell you the starting lineup to every Major League Baseball team one through nine. He could then go through every starter and tell you who was a day one starter, day two starter, day three starter. And when I tell you this, used to, like we would pull up our phones like, on, like Brooke and I, and we'd be like, okay, who plays right field for the Cardinals? Boom. Who, who plays third base for the Braves? He'd go through I mean, random teams. We'd pull, hey, who plays second for the Phillies? He'd nail it. And I'm going. And so one night we probably did that for half an hour. I'm trying to bust him and hadn't missed one, not one. And I finally looked at him. I think we had Rhonda Hemphill that year. And I said, there better never be ever a test that you don't make a hundred on for lack of studying, because it is obvious that you can learn whatever you want to learn if you want to learn it, right? Now, the reason I bring that up is there's a lot of people who, when they approach the Bible, they know a ton. They, man, they can rattle it off. God may have gifted you with a great brain. But what's more important than that is that when you take that knowledge, that you meditate on it. Now, when we use the word meditation, and you may have seen it in this book, I think, and maybe rightfully so, that makes some people nervous. Meditation? What, what are you talking about? Is that like Aaron Rodgers going to lock yourself in the dark for weeks at a time? And um, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about people lighting incense and and sitting Indian style and humming and mm, I hope he I hope he's not talking about that yoga, I'm not doing any of that. What are we talking about when we say meditation? Man, this is one of the things I've been so convicted about in my life because, and I've, I've confessed this to you, I go fast when there's no reason to go fast. Um, I got tickled the other day. Um, Sydney Boyd, her office is catty corner across from mine in the office. And so I came out the other day and she said, literally every time you come out of your office, she said, I kind of, it, it scares me because she said, you open the door like you're ripping it off the hinges. She said, you come out of the office and you, you're, you've, the, your boots sound like you were running to the front, front of the office. And I realized like, I, and I, it kind of caused me to take stock. I was like, I do open the door like that. Like, and I do come down the hall like that, and I have no idea why. I, I mean, I really don't like, I mean, every now and then, but I mean, very seldom do I have to run to the front of the, I mean, do I need to run to the front of the office? And so the reason I tell you that is I'm continually convicted about, I don't understand what's wrong sometimes in my own heart about why sometimes when I, that it, it's just hard to, 
slow down a minute and say, you're, you're not even in that big a hurry. Like, wh why, why is your heart constantly where a place where you feel like you've got to prove something to yourself by being busy and going and moving? And so meditation is something that, that I'm constantly convicted about because I will take a fact and I'll try to memorize it, understand it, and boom, I've got it. Okay, move on. But meditation is not about sitting Indian style and humming while you light candles in a circle. It's about taking a truth and taking enough time to really think about it and let it soak in enough that some conviction comes to your life or some comfort comes to your life or some specific change comes to your life, that worship comes into your heart. And so meditation is really about that I'm not just reading the Bible, but I'm giving it time to sink in enough that I actually am able to apply it. I'm applying it in the way that I thank the Lord. I'm applying it in the way that I praise the Lord. I'm applying it in the way I see some changes that need to be made. And that's what real spiritual meditation is. It's great to have a quiet time, but I don't know if any of you struggle with this. So look, I'm the pastor and I struggle with this. I told you I like list. I can be bad about even with a quiet time being like, let me get that read. And I'm reading through it as fast as I can because I want to be able to, so the Lord will give me my check mark. Good job. Did you read your Bible and pray today? Oh yeah, I did that. I, I don't think... The Lord is really honored with me giving a high five to him so I can check something off the list. I mean, I, I just know in my human relationships that probably doesn't work with people. My, my wife is here tonight, and I, I love her to death. But I think at some point, if all I do is run past and be like, hey, girl, how you doing? Boom. Good to see you. Appreciate everything you do. Boom. And I don't ever sit down, and we don't ever talk and I don't ever listen, that there's a good chance that that relationship's not going to develop. Well, if that's true in a human relationship, the meditation's necessary. So my hope is that as you read this book, maybe for some of you, and maybe about Bible reading, this is a big deal too. Maybe you need to read less of your Bible. Hold on. Maybe you need to try to read less of your Bible, but meditate more on your Bible. In other words, it may be great that somebody reads 10 chapters of their Bible a day. I think that's wonderful. But I would rather you see somebody read six verses of their Bible a day and truly take a time to try to ingest that and meditate on that and allow whatever it is that you're reading to make a difference. So that's what meditation is. So that's my hope for you as you study doctrine, as you study theology, that it would make real practical differences in your life. Uh, again, um, I am auctioning off this last copy. So if you will see Brian, he's going to be the one. He's back there in the back. He's taking bids. Um, so we can you can pick this up, but we do have this, and I think maybe one more copy in the back. Be sure if you haven't already done that that you would pick that up. Be sure that, you be, uh, that you're here this Sunday. We're going to continue our study of the book of Colossians. We are on, going to be talking about the doctrine of reconciliation, what it means to be reconciled to God this Sunday. I'm excited about that, excited to share that. With you guys, we've got a lot of things happening this fall. Excited to be a part of that. Let me pray for you guys, and we will be dismissed. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege that we can know you. And the only reason we can know you is because you revealed yourself to us through your Son and through your Word. So I pray, God, that we would see knowing you as the most all-important, all-consuming passion of our life. Lord, so tonight, 
as we continue to study, as we continue to seek you, Lord, we're humbled by the fact that when we seek you, we can find you if we seek you with our heart. So Lord, I pray tonight that you would continually show us who you are more and more each and every day. We love you and we're thankful for everything that you do for us and for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.